Artificial intelligence, and specifically generative AI, has been one of the biggest topics in just about every field in recent years. Given the nature of AI technology as an often passable writer, drawer, designer and drafter, we may feel that the communication and media industries are right at the forefront of this change. Will it hurt or help? Will we embrace it or push it back? Do we sharpen and value human skill or do we turn huge portions of what we do over to the machine? Hi there, my name is Dr. Travis Holland. I'm a senior lecturer in communication at Charles Sturt University in Australia. This podcast is an exploration into our digital society. It forms lectures and stimulus material for my class, envisioning the digital society, but also aims to engage the listener out there beyond my classroom. Previous episodes in this series have varied as material produced by me, often featuring interviews with relevant experts, and also episodes largely dominated by student voices. In that way, the podcast has been both an educational and practice resource for our communication and media students. This episode is something different. The first iteration of this class finished a few months ago, and the next one won't happen until next year. But my colleague Michelle O'Connor and I have revived the feed to contribute to the big rhetorical podcast carnival 2023. The theme of the carnival is artificial intelligence, applications and trajectories. It takes place from August 28 to 31st, 2023, and all participating episodes are available via the Big Rhetorical Podcasts feed, which I'll link in the show notes. Throughout the carnival, you'll hear from a bunch of mostly academic podcast makers with their take on this topic. The carnival will conclude with a keynote interview with Dr. Isabel Peterson, Professor of Communication Studies at Toronto, Ontario Tech University, and founding director of the Digital Life Institute. To read more about Dr. Peterson's research, including her new book, Augmentation Technologies and Artificial Intelligence in Technical Communication, head to the Digital Life Institute website, www.digitallife.org. Welcome to Digital Society. First up, a reintroduction to my colleague, radio and audio expert, Michelle O'Connor. Michelle and I lecture in a communication program that has a very profession and practice oriented approach to teaching undergraduates. Our students tend to end up in journalism, radio, advertising and digital media roles across Australian media landscape. Our comments in this episode are oriented mostly around the applications and trajectories of AI in that field, broadly communication and media, but also higher education teaching in that discipline. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me back on the pod. Of course. I uh, couldn't do it all myself as usual. Now, Michelle, you and I have been playing with different styles and techniques of content delivery in our teaching for a little while now. You used our on-campus community radio station to lecture via live broadcast a while back. How did that go? Yeah, basically, I used radio to teach radio. We're fortunate to have a community radio station here on campus and in fact the university is the the license holder for the station. The station's called 2MCE and began broadcasting in the 1970s. Uh, So in 2021 I was teaching a subject called Introduction to Radio 
and prior to the start of the subject, Travis, you suggested that I use the radio station. Mm, I like to lay down challenges. Yeah, yeah, as part of the <laughs> part of the subject. Look, I got it straight away. I just went bang. I know exactly what to do. Um, I pitched a program to the station's management, and um, we were able to access a weekly uh, time slot for the duration of the subject. And I used that program um, to deliver the lecture content for the subject. Uh, so instead of you know being in the lecture theatre and um, or recording a lecture even, um, I use the radio to kind of deliver that lecture uh, that lecture content, and two students each week were invited to come into the studio and co-host the show with me. So you know they were responsible for coming up with some of the content as well, um, and and being in in the studio, the remainder of the cohort. Uh, were listening to the show. So they were listening to the, the radio broadcast and that was how they were listening to, the, to, the, to their lecture, essentially. Uh, they would gather together in the dorms, mm. they'd listen together in the dorms or, you know, in the car. And I would pose questions just as you would in a lecture and the students would kind of respond to that using the text line, the radio station's um, text line. Look, the success of it was that after that, you know, more than half of the cohort went on to do radio shows themselves. Um, so, you know, I think that there was scope to experiment a bit more about that, but um, I thought it was great. And the thing was that at the show that was open to the public as well. And so there was this real return to um, um, that open access learning. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the, those students were first years as well. So it's not like they were students who had a lot of that experience already but we invited them in, give them real life media production experience and, and away they go. For me, I've always tried to do something similar whenever I'm doing recorded material. Um, I've always tried to make sure it doesn't feel like just a, an hour long or a two hour long lecture that I've recorded. And so I tend to compress those lectures into like 20 minute videos or less and put some imagery in there. Then this year, though, I thought we'd build on that with podcast lectures. And so that's where this podcast and this special episode of the podcast comes in. And again, I tried to make it feel like a podcast rather than a lecture. And I asked the students to contribute segments as well. So one of the things the students and I talked about, given the topic of the subject, was generative AI. It was a big topic last session, and I had lots of really interesting conversations with the students about how we could or should or might use it. I'm now teaching ethics, so I get to continue those conversations, which is great. Both I and the students used the generative AI throughout the podcast to help with scripting and things like voiceovers, and we played around with different ideas quite a bit. Uh, a lot of those tools want you to pay for them, of course, which is always a, a challenging question of how much you, you're willing to reach into your pocket. But the engagement was uncertain. It all felt really new. And now we're starting to mature a little bit, sort of 12 months on from the launch of ChatGPT. So where do you think we are now, Michelle? Oh, look, um, we did some experiments in with AI in classes this year uh, as well. Um, and again, with first years. And we asked AI to generate some new scripts, um, just as a kind of activity nothing too serious and um, 
we asked them to generate some scripts around uh, the state of origin, which was topical at the time. The state of origin is a really big football match here yeah, in a just about one rugby of the... league match here in Australia. Yeah. And then I got the students to read those scripts as if they were newsreaders to camera, so they would do piece to camera. And, you know, I think that we kind of agreed that the scripts really didn't capture, um, you know, what the state of origin might mean to fans, right? It, it has, um, you know, a, a great meaning. There's a whole lot of state rivalry around state of origin. And sure, it came up with the facts, but it didn't actually capture, we thought, something that was meaningful. It didn't actually capture that emotion. Sure, we were asking for news scripts. We didn't put in too many detailed prompts and um, a news script might be more kind of fact-based anyway. Um, but it was really interesting that I reckon um, the students, if they wrote a script about that, they would be bringing their experience mm. from what the meaning of the state of origin is into those scripts. Um, yeah, so look, that was kind of just one of the experiments that we did. Um, the students, I guess, you know, they're, they're concerned. They're, mm. they're concerned about um, AI and its impact on their, um, their profession that they're becoming emerging professionals for. Yeah, we asked them to think about being professionals. And we have programs here that we call emerging professionals. So we encourage the students to think about themselves in those quasi-professional roles, basically from the moment they walk through the door. And that's why we give them the opportunity to produce uh, media of all types and put it out there. So like all tools, I think AI can be a useful addition to those everyday workflows in, in interesting ways. We could think about its utility, you know, checking the readability of articles for journalists or helping to expand on or challenge pre-existing ideas. I know it's been talked about as a potential tutor of some kind. So you could ask it to offer counterfactuals, you know, if you were if you were planning an essay or something like that. One of the major advantages, though, is that AI can sort through huge amounts of data that and find patterns that humans can't spot. So in something like journalism, you can see that being really helpful to uncover stories and stories that might not be visible otherwise. You know, it might be about fraud or accounting irregularities or things that humans just might not spot being able to sort through that data and tell those stories maybe in interesting ways. But we've seen just in the last couple of weeks a, a, a prominent news organisation here in Australia announced that they have been generating something like 3,000 stories a week based on generative AI. But these are really low profile news articles like local weather and sport, things that don't need much input. Um, although your sport example kind of puts, puts claim to that. And they're being automated, but they do have some editorial oversight. So what challenges do we think that our students as emerging professionals might face? Mm, I'm, I'm gonna start by saying I'm all about the meaning making, Travis, mm. right? So I, as, as a communication professional, I'm all about the meaning that the audience gets from, you know, whatever it is that we're communicating, whether it's this podcast, right? What's the meaning that the, the listener takes away from listening to, to the podcast? So I'm going to return back to, to radio again here. And in the radio industry, the, you know, there's stations already starting to experiment with AI through 
um, AI-generated scripts, FRADs, mm. um, even voicing, you know, using AI-generated um, voices to voice those ads. Um, there's a new digital station that started in Australia this year and prior to the launch of that station, you know, the media was reporting that they'd hired a news anchor and that news anchor would work with um, an AI to, to do the news reading, to read the news bulletins. Um, and, you know, I, thinking about meaning and radio, you know, I just wonder what we might lose in the, ma- in the meaning making that we get from mm. listening to the radio, from, um, you know, AI-generated radio content. And in Australia, we have a really large and diverse community media sector. Um, and so uh, people volunteer to be involved in their local community radio station. Uh, they, they come and they present uh, on community radio stations. And, you know, asking that question of why do people volunteer to present on the radio and what would it mean to them to be replaced by AI, Mm. you know, and why do people tune in to community radio and what would be the impact of that if there was some sort of AI replacement? So the latest community radio listener survey shows that one of the reasons that listeners tune in to community radio is to hear local voices and local personalities. That is, local people on the radio reflect the community back to mm. the community, right? And so, anyway, that's the context in which I think about AI and, um, and radio. I mean, Spotify's introduced uh, an AI DJ that back announces songs using sort of AI scripts um, and, and audio generated by those AIs as well. That kind of thing might work at a global mm. level, I guess. But what it tends to do is, you know, it brings in everything, local culture or local music from, from different countries and different cultures and then mashes it all together into one kind of never-ending stream and very homogenising, whereas your research really focuses focuses on the local and what makes local media like community media really valuable to people. Um, the way it allows their connections to their community to be to be strengthened, which I'm just not sure that we'd ever find uh, AIs being that good to to be able to replace that. And even if they were that good, would people value it in any way, any meaningful way at all? Yeah, I I think local media in particular, uh, you know, local media broadly community media in particular, it's about people being in their community, right? Mm. And then bringing those issues or bringing those perspectives um, from the community back to the radio studio and communicating that out much broadly to the local community. Um, I think it's really valuable and it's about meaning. It's about meaning making, right? And, And that in some way the local audience is listening to one of them. I record a podcast which is nearly all always recorded online because I'm talking to people all over the world or in other other states. Um, that podcast for me is a creative research project. I'm trying to figure out how paleontology topics can be communicated mm-hmm. you know, through audio. 
So being an online recording, I mostly use Riverside FM to record and host the pod, uh, to record and edit the podcasts, and then I host them on on Spotify. Riverside's just introduced a tool I really like. It's called Magic Clips, and it's uh, being sold as an AI kind of tool. Um, it generates the short clips with captions, and you can export them as audio or video uh, if you want the captions as well. You can choose the tracks that are involved and it picks the length, but it picks an interesting topic and then kind of produces its own headline for what that is about, that section of recording. You can lengthen it or shorten it. You can export it in any number of formats to put up on social media and promote the show. I think that's a really handy tool and it's useful to see AI in deployment that way. but. It's a tool that automates part of a workflow that you would be doing anyway. It doesn't create something that you couldn't have created or wouldn't have created for yourself as well. So, plus it's already creating it out of your existing work, which I find is interesting. And when we think about these AIs and we talk about the extent to which they might take over that creative endeavor, using it like that really appeals to me to to save time to make things work if you're still checking the content and using it in an authentic way compared to you know fully scripting or um, having the voices generated by AI or, or whatever it might be so I think we're going to start to see more of those developments particularly in those enterprise tools that you know have the paid and the, the, the notion of free AI is not going to persist because it's you know hugely computing intensive but in our media production fields, I think that's a useful use and, and uh, we might continue to see that grow maybe across the sector. But again, there is a question of resources there, of money. Yeah, sure. And I think that means that perhaps it's making that platform a little bit more user-friendly as well, that you may not need to learn all of kind of the editing mm. techniques, right? That. Um, to be able to make your own podcast, that the platform by integrating some of that generative AI um, uh, into those workflows is making it a little bit more user-friendly because um, AI is starting to be incorporated into the software that we use to teach content creation. So Adobe, for example, is incorporating generative AI into pro programs like Photoshop. Um, and so Adobe does describe this AI as, in quote, quotes, creative, a creative co-pilot. Mm. And so using that um, AI, you know, to help you do the, to do the creative process, right? And so it's what they've been introduced at the moment is a generative fill function um, in, in Photoshop. So, you know, I think mm. that it makes it, you don't actually have to learn all of the tools of Photoshop, for instance. Um, it makes the program perhaps a little bit more user-friendly. Yeah. I think there's value in that, yeah? Which is not dissimilar to earlier tech progression, I think. You know, in the kind of uh, early versions of the web, the, the CMS was quite hard to wrangle, for example. And then we started to get WYSIWYG editors and that made it much more user-friendly. And then something like WordPress shifted to, to blocks, which was all about designing things um, much more easily. And for people who were used to either HTML editing or WYSIWYG editing, I think blocks started to get annoying, right? But it kind of um, it became easier to generate 
visually appealing content and produce that on WordPress. And again, the software was kind of shaping the output, but wasn't necessarily um, changing or, you know, interfering in what in what you were trying to achieve in any um, overtly difficult way. Our institution has introduced rules that say students can only use generative AI if it's specifically permitted in the subject outline. And that's that strikes me as fair enough to, to the early phases of this. But when you start to look at those rules, I think they fall down in practice a little bit. And the reason I say that is because if your theory is our oh, generative AI is going to a website like ChatGPT and typing in a prompt and then using that prompt and copying and pasting it back into your essay, fine. You can easily say, don't do that um, unless you give them specific permission. But to what extent is something like Grammarly considered an AI? You know, those tools help you rewrite sentences or suggest different wording that you could use. And that's built into Microsoft Word. It's doing those same sorts of things. So. I wrote this script in Google Docs and I've now got a little generative AI box following me down the page that says help me write. Um, you can highlight a paragraph and click help me write, expand this or simplify this or change the tone of this. To what extent is that starting to, it, it's starting to blur those, those boundaries quite a lot. Um, and then there's Canva which our students use all the time and Canva has these uh, great design tools where you import an image and it picks the colors from that image and then shapes a presentation or a, a template around that to suit the image that you've imported. Now, sometimes it's not great, but if it gives you 10 options and you get to pick the best one, you, you're kind of, um, you're using those tools, but not in a way that seems like a, seems like something you can ban, I guess, in, a, in, an, in an educative context. So for me, it's about encouraging students to think about how they're using those tools, to use them in an ethical way, to think about the frameworks that they're engaging with as they use them, uh, to think about IP and all of those things as well. Um, because as soon as we look at it too closely, the distinctions between AI and not AI are falling apart pretty pretty quickly already. So we're already starting to run into dangerous, dangerous territory there. And I think your point about Photoshop and Adobe is, is just pointing to that as well. Well, I've had to learn over the years, Travis, because I write um, assessment tasks and I write in the assessment tasks, you know, um, create, you know, whatever, you know, create a, a, make a video or make a film or make a podcast or make some audio. And I've put the word original in, into yep. assessment tasks. So over the years, I've had create your own original work. Mm -hmm. um, and Coming, you know, being old school, for me, video, you know, if I've asked a student to create a, an original video, it means coming in here and borrowing one of the cameras and taking it out and filming, you know, shoot, doing the, the, shooting the footage and coming back and then editing yep. the footage together and writing a script and recording sounds to go with it or whatever and editing that. So over the years, I've started to see students' interpretation of original is really different from mm. my interpretation of original. Remixing might still be original yeah. or using stock footage yeah, or yeah. whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Using stock footage um, was the first thing I think that I really recognised. Um, sure, they were, it was an original idea for the video, um, but using stock footage, which happens in industry, so it does replicate industry anyway. So it's that understanding 
you know, what we mean by original. And mm. maybe AI is really, you know, some of the generative AI is really good for idea generation, right? So playing around with AI, um, with ideas. But I think what we're going to have to do is make sure that we're writing really clearly in, in our assessment tasks what we expect to, um, to see in students' work, right? And defining what original yep. actually means anymore. That's been the big challenge yep. for me is defining originality. And, and even thinking about, you know, we have rubric referenced assessment here. So, but often the rubric, um, certainly for me, you know, I will ask for an assessment in a particular form, but that's because I want students to practice that form, but I'm also not gonna mark that thing in the rubric. So I'm not gonna mark the quality of their editing in the rubric, for example, because I just want them to get familiar with the editing tools. But what I'm going to mark is the information they present and the, how they've sourced that information and those kinds of things. And so then there's a question of, okay, if they start using editing tools and they never learn editing, well, I'm not, I wasn't assessing it in the first place. So does that really matter? Um, to me, I would say yes, because the assessment was a, is a whole package, right? It's not just the thing in the rubric. It's the whole process of thinking through and planning and doing that editing and learning those tools. Uh, as well in, a, in an environment that's kind of safe for failure. And that's in some ways why I, why I try not to aesthetic, assess aesthetic decisions in our courses, because I want the students to, to have that freedom as well. So that's, we've covered so much ground there, Michelle. That's been a really interesting discussion. Um, thanks so much. I'm keen to le keep learning and teaching about uh, generative AI and in particular in the media industries. And I think uh, in our program, that's, that's what we're going to, aim to do so yeah and I'm going to keep sort of looking at meaning making right and mm. and what it means to listen to a podcast you know what it means um to listen to the radio what it means to watch you know a, a tv show or something right the, that meaning making that's the, that's the real essence for me so yeah yeah see watch this space I guess absolutely thanks so much um one of my students from last session, Rachel Vanderhell, produced a really interesting discussion about the links between AI and social media. So with her permission, I'm going to conclude the episode with Rachel's segment. Hey Siri, take a step back. We are introducing a whole new technologically commanded artificial intelligence engine into our households. Today, AI is an integral part of our social media use. While Siri, Cortana and Android Voice are all recognised and respond to voice commands, AI programs grasp the deeper meaning of actions to provide more accurate and intelligent results. Hello, my name is Rachel and I will be discussing the advancing technologies of AI within the social media playground and what that entails to everyday social media users. Fundamentally, long before social media, the internet was used to do what Facebook's mission statement promised. Connecting with friends and family, discovering what is going on in the world, and sharing and expressing what matters. And just check out people's online identities and see how people portray themselves and just find some interesting information about people. And long before the internet, there were a variety of ways to connect, discover, and share with one another. It's within ourselves to yearn for this connection, to grasp and reveal as much information as possible. It's the way our world revolves. However, we are amid a heavily AI-focused narrative within the context of social media and technological advances. 
In this digital era, in which an unimaginable amount of data is generated daily, AI has become a significant part of the major social media networks that contribute massively to managing this fast data coming to social media platforms, including text and visual content creation, social media monitoring, ad management, influencer research, and much more. AI has all the information there and is learning ways to connect with us and make it accessible within a few clicks and taps of our screens. With this in mind, is it possible to suggest that AI is taking the social out of the media? AI is constantly evolving and improving. It's now capable of personalizing experiences for users on social media platforms. It's likely that you're already using AI in your social media interactions without even knowing it. Everything you've recently searched will become analytics within your feeds. Ever researched a particular product one time and then it becomes the only item advertised on your Facebook? That's AI. It's almost creepy how intrusive AI can be on our social media experiences. For example, Snapchat updated the app this year to include an AI chat that takes the top spot in your messages. At launch, My AI is essentially just a fast mobile friendly version of ChatGPT inside Snapchat. The main difference is that Snapchat's version is more restricted in what it can answer. I gave my AI the chance to be real with me, and I decided to have a conversation with it. Here's how it went. Dear my AI, what are you? I'm an AI-powered friend that lives inside Snapchat. Are you a search engine or a friend? I'm a friend, not a search engine. Why are you on my Snapchat? I'm here to chat with you and be your virtual friend. But you're an AI. Can an AI be my friend? Yes, I'm an AI-powered friend that's here to chat with you and keep you company. You can also search things for me, though. Doesn't that make you a search engine? I'm not a search engine, but I can help you find information if you need. Thanks, AI. Great talking to you. You too. After trying my AI, it's clear that Snapchat doesn't feel the need to even explain the phenomenon that is ChatGPT, which is a testament to OpenAI building the fastest growing consumer software product in history. However, Snapchat's approach treats generative AI more like a persona. My AI's profile page looks like any other Snapchat user's profile as the design suggests my AI is meant to be another friend inside of Snapchat for you to hang out with, not a search engine. With all of this information and testing AI myself, I've discovered that there is a trend. We don't need a search anymore. We don't need a yearn for social interaction. There's really no need for any of it. Thanks to AI, you have a best friend that can discover all that stuff for you. It is taking the social out of your social interaction. Thank you to my colleague Michelle O'Connor and our student Rachel Vanderhel for contributing to this episode of Digital Society as part of the Big Rhetorical Podcasts Carnival for 2023. Please make sure to check out the other episodes on the feeds and we will talk to you next time.